0: Lumberjack Sunday, May 7th, my favorite thing our church does, because only in Marysville Church of Christ could you do a Lumberjack Sunday. For those of you who were not here last year, couldn't make it, or have no idea what Lumberjack Sunday is, here we go. Lumberjack Sunday is an entire event where all of us dress in flannel, we wear boots, which... I actually had to go buy boots because I didn't own any. Um, Also flannel. I needed some of that too. Uh, But we all come together and we sing songs that have trees in them. We have a sermon given to us by our own tree wizard in Josh about trees. And then afterwards, we watch a variety of demonstrations from a whole bunch of people who work with trees for a living. Last year, we were graced with Aaron Howold, taking a giant should have asked Josh what the name of this thing is. Grapple truck. truck. I was going to say like the arcade game, but that, yes. The grapple truck. And we watched him pick up an egg and move it without breaking it. It was incredible. Giant truck. Tiny egg. These guys are insane. Uh, But mainly it's just a time for us to get together, an excuse for Josh to show off, and the rest of us an opportunity to eat good food. So I hope you make an effort to be there. But honestly, Lumberjack Sunday has become my favorite... um, Thing we do because of the sermons that it leads to. I have always been fascinated with trees of the Bible. Behind God and money, it's the third most talked about thing in Scripture trees. The biggest events in the Bible take place under the shade of trees. The Bible starts with a tree, ends with a tree, is changed by a tree, and we're saved by tree. It's incredible. For the next couple of weeks, we're using Lumberjack Sunday as a thinly veiled excuse to talk about trees and talk about some of the coolest moments that take place in Scripture. This morning, we're going to find ourselves under a tamarisk tree, and we're going to see an old hero of the Bible make an eternal promise that still gives us hope today and can change our life forever. But before we get there, we're going to start here. People in the booth, I'll see if this works. If not, be ready for my points. Hey! God created the world. And it was beautiful. And it was wonderful. And everything was perfect. But see, creation had in it a design that all things were going to work together. All things were designed unity. I mentioned I walk to work a lot and one of the things I'm seeing frequently is the butterflies and bees beginning their pollination, flying flower to flower, working in tandem with the plants to grow, to germinate and do all the other stuff I didn't pay attention for in biology class. A microcosm of how creation was supposed to be. All of us working together, all of creation working together in peace and in harmony. And God had a plan to how to show this off best. A man and a woman, his image bearers, Adam and Eve, they were going to work in perfect tandem, ruling the cosmos together in peace and in unity, standing side by side, encouraging one another, serving one another, and allowing their partnership to rule the earth. And God looked out. And behold, it was very good. Creation was accomplishing this peace. It was accomplishing its goal of unity, of purpose. It was very good. But it was only a matter of time before it went from very good to very not good as sin entered. As sin entered, it began to change everything. We see that the lion and the lamb could no longer lay together, but now they were hunting one another That bees no longer were just pollinating flowers, but stinging me and annoying me. And not only that, but man and woman. The partnership that was supposed to exemplify the perfect creation. Became a power struggle. Became full of hate. Man hating man. Subjecting each other in violence and in disdain. And so... The cosmos, the chaos that was at the very beginning, as Genesis 1 tells us, the waters returned to earth. They fell from the heavens and submerged the earth back into the chaos in which it had come from. And God watched as his creation story was falling apart at the seams. Everything seemed hopeless. It seemed lost except for one man and his family in a boat on top of the earth. Wickedness, evil, all the things that had dominated the earth prior to the flood was being swept away in its torrent of chaos. And God thought, maybe this, even this atrocious event, could bring hope for the creation that I planned. Peace, uh, peace from chaos, unity, working together in tandem, a giant orchestral piece beautifully crafted, singing the praises of God and his love. Once again, Noah's family failed, and once again we were plunged back into chaos. The hope, the peace, the unity lost in violence and in pride and power struggles and in hate. It exemplified itself in Genesis chapter 11 with the story that we always teach little kids. The Tower of... Right? I don't know if anyone else did that. Otherwise, this is really weird. But that's how I was taught the story. Tower of... Right? You guys are looking at me weird. Maybe that's not how you guys learned it. But it's a good image for little kids and apparently 27-year-old man children. Um, Genesis chapter 11 was all about this story. Humanity full of evil, deciding they want to conquer God, sending to the heavens to dethrone the Lord of lords. Evil in their hearts. In sadness, God has to divide them. The people that were unified. The final straw, if you will, in the Jenga Tower that is collapsing around God's creation people no longer unified in good, but unified only in evil and pride. So he divides them, and they scatter. Different languages, different tribes, different people everywhere. God's unified creation, dead, done, and over. When we talk about the Tower of Babel, we talk about the creation of languages, we talk about all these other things that the the story Leads us to believe, but we miss the biggest part. This story is designed to teach us a fatal flaw that got introduced to humanity at the Tower of Babel, something that up to this point humanity hadn't suffered with, but from the Babel on, we <laughs> Babel uh, Babel on, we are all going to struggle with forever. I'm going to say a big phrase, and then I'll say a little phrase. In us versus them, polarity. Us versus them. And this is what we struggle with. Babel divided people into tribes, which became nations, which became groups. And one group would look at another group and be like, yeah, we are good, they are bad. Us versus them. And humanity, which was always supposed to be unified, became even more divided as the concept of us, the good guys, versus them, the bad guys, was created. And God wept as he watched his creation descend into us versus them polarity. Hate, discrimination, violence, wars, all because of this moment. I also want to offer a quick little throw-in line that God does what God always does. And he tried to make something beautiful out of the mess of Babel. And so from it, like uh, a prism, for any of you who remember 8th grade science or are a fan of Pink Floyd, uh, there is a light that comes into a prism and then reflects light in different directions. Babel is kind of like that. A moment where diverse groups of people went to all over the world and created beautiful ethnic cultures, each one different and stunning. God tried to make beauty even out of the mess of Babel. But as God watched these groups of people beginning to hate each other, discriminate, violence, wars, everything, he wept. But we don't have to wait long before God tries to return the hope of creation. If you are curious, where is the tamarisk tree? We'll get there. Genesis 12. God sees Abraham... Abram at the time and his wife Sarai living in the place of Hebron and comes to visit him gives him a covenant a promise. The promise goes like this. I will make you into a great nation I will bless you he tells Abram and I will make your name great so that you will exemplify divine blessings I will bless those who bless you and the one who treats you lightly I must curse so that all the families of earth may receive blessings through you Again, the Bible story we pull from this is the promise of Isaac, right? He's going to have a son. That's crazy. He's old. That's the way we tell the story. But the Jews didn't focus on Isaac. The Jews, especially we see through rabbinic tradition, focused on that last line. That all the families of the earth will be blessed through him. Abraham's covenant was not really about Isaac. It was about the promise that God's creation was going to come full circle. That it was going to return to the way God wanted it there in Genesis 1. Peace and unity. It didn't matter about differences. We were all going to find a purpose in this new family of Abraham. N.T. Wright calls the covenant of Abraham the singular most important covenant in the Bible and the one that doesn't go away. He's right, because even in Romans, Paul talks about how we all, though once distant, are now family of Abraham, the covenant that God will bring his creation back to oneness, back to the Garden of Eden, back together again. Bishop, you've been talking now for 11 minutes. There is no tamarisk tree. It comes towards the end. Isaiah 2.4. Despite all of these this ups and downs, this story that we just told, Genesis 1 to Genesis 12, a fall, a flood, a babble, all sorts of problems, there is this hope that still permeates from Abraham. And even the prophets, hundreds of years later, those who write the songs hundreds of years later, when they talk about Abraham, they say things like this, The Lord will mediate between nations and will settle disputes. They will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will no longer fight against nation, nor train for war anymore. Or Asaph, when he writes, May the mountains bring peace to the people, and the hills bring righteousness. Or in Isaiah 11, verse 6, The wolf will live with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and young lion and sheep will be together, and what a beautiful image, and a little child. We'll lead them all. What is he talking about? That through Abraham, the promise of creation is back on. That someday there's going to come a point where the, the creation will find peace again. Oneness. No more conflict. No more hate. No more us versus them. It's all going to go away. The sin stain of Babel will be undone someday. We just have to wait. Israel was designed to wait. They were designed of people of waiting, waiting for that day to occur, the day when everything would be back to oneness. In fact, Israel itself was created to be a nation of priests, priests, someone who stands in between God and man. Israel was designed to expand Abraham's family to include the world. That's why they were made to start the recreation process of bringing everything back under God. The story of hope. Hope that one day all creation will be back together. This hope motivated the Jews for thousands of years through exiles and wars, a hope that someday nations would stop fighting amongst each other that there would be a kingdom of Israel that would reign and there would be no more us versus them because men and women, nationalities, ethnic groups, all of it would be irrelevant to the unity that comes from creation and peace and love. There would be no more us, the good guys, versus those people. That idea was going to die. and It was going to die because of Abraham's promise. But in the Old Testament, they had this frustrating thing that you couldn't just make a promise, right? That's not how that worked. You couldn't just make a promise, you had to sign a promise with an item. You know, we do it today, actually, like with our marriage, with our wedding rings, right? We make a promise I love you, I'll stay with you. And we signify it by what? A ring. We say the words, then we give an item. The Old Testament, this promise was big. This promise that there was going to be a new creation, that there was going to be hope between people who hate each other, that there was a hope of reconciliation needed an item, something that could symbolize it forever. It needed a token like a wedding ring. Anyone want to guess what that token was? And we're here the tamarisk tree. This became the symbol of hope. The symbol of hope. If you have your Bible, turn to Genesis 21. I don't have time now to read the story to you. You can do it on your own time. But I will kind of talk through it for just a moment. Genesis chapter 21 starts with a very important story. We're going to skip that one, because that's not the point of the sermon. We're going to skip to the bottom of that. There is a dispute between Abraham and his family and some residents of the area that they're in. (laughs) This conflict over a well boils over into some form of, we don't know if it's violence or what, but there was a dispute that happened. However, these, to use the us versus them model, the thems in this story, these other guys, decided that they were going to leave it alone in the dispute and that they wanted peace with Abraham. They wanted peace with Abraham's people. So Abraham made a promise of peace and to sign the peace treaty, he planted a tree, a tamarisk there in the ground as a symbol and a token that says us and them have made a peace treaty. Us and and them have made a peace treaty. Now, the tamarisk, as we'll see in just a moment, is actually an interesting tree choice because it wasn't native to the ancient Near East. It actually was a foreign tree from Central Africa. It was one of the many luxuries that Abraham carried around with him. And so he planted a foreign tree in a foreign land to signify an idea of hope that was foreign to the people. A peace treaty. Now, these others, these thems that made this peace treaty, was given a name, the name Abimelech. And they represented by the people of the Philistines. If you've read the Old Testament, you know that name. Those are the really bad guys, like Goliath. Remember the giant that David killed? That guy was a Philistine. Now, what's interesting here is they actually weren't Philistines. And his name wasn't Abimelech. We actually don't know what his name was. And we don't know what these people were. But Moses, because their names were lost to history, did what Moses always does when he comes up across a pagan, a them, king that he doesn't know their name. He gives them the name Abimelech. There's actually four Abimelechs. And they're all from people we don't know. And he also does this thing that if he doesn't know a people group, but he, does, he wants to like make the Israelites not like them, he calls them Philistines. Because guess what the Israelites didn't like? Philistines. The name Abimelech literally is a jab at the pagans because Abimelech literally means our God is the true king. Our father is the true king. So whenever he would give a name Abimelech to a king of a foreign power, he would always give him the name Abimelech as a reminder that this guy is just a phony. He's an outsider. He's a them. We're the good guys. He's the bad guy. And Abimelech became the symbol of that. Not only that, but Philistines, there was a bunch of different types of Philistines. The first batch, the one in the time of Abraham, probably Greek explorers. The second batch were actually Spaniards in the time of David, all the way from Crete or Spain. But all of them had one thing in common. They were all outsiders. The thems. They came from a foreign land with military on their mind. They were to be feared, scared. They were the boogeyman of Israel, the Philistines. And we see that the conflict between the Philistines and the Israelites was pretty common. All these chapters are different wars or battles that took place between Israel and Philistines. The blood of the conflict seems to drip from every page of the Bible. Samson being buried alive under the weight of the Philistines falling to their death. David standing heroically on the battlefield, holding the head of a Philistine general while he charges on into battle under war cries, massacring every single one of them in his wake. Or the Philistines charging into an unexpected place of worship, surrounding it and burning everyone in it alive. This conflict was brutal. The us versus the them. You know, when I first discovered the tamarisk tree, I'll be honest, I did a very um, educated way of determining what trees to talk about. I went to BibleGateway.com, typed in tree, and pressed enter. Started reading all the stories about trees. It's pretty cool, you should do it, if you have a really long time to do that. This story, I almost passed by completely. I was like, okay, random tamarisk tree. Abraham, Abimelech, who cares? We move on. Until I got to thinking about it. When I saw later that 1 Samuel chapter 31, verse 13, also had a tamarisk tree. 1 Samuel chapter 31, Saul, the king of Israel, is at war with the Philistines. And there's this massive battle in which the Israelites are very successful against the Philistines and massacre them. But in the conflict, the area of the battle that Saul was in got overrun. Saul was alone on a hill by himself, him and his armor bearer, and the Philistines noticed him. And so they send a a group of archers to go track him down. They begin to fire. The barrage after barrage after barrage of arrows, Saul couldn't escape until he got hit. He was going to die. He didn't want a dirty outsider, a Philistine, a them to be the one to kill him. So he fell on his own sword. They found him, and they buried him. But just for flavor, do you notice under what tree Samuel buried Saul? It's under the tamarisk tree. Sit for that. With that, for just a second, let's create a picture in your brain, shall we? The tree that is supposed to represent peace between the insiders and the outsiders. The us versus the them. The the, the tree that represents the promise that someday there will be no more war. And someday when this time comes, there's going to be a kingdom that's going to unify people. And there's not going to be any more hate or violence or discrimination or any of that junk. It's going to go away. The tree that represents that promise is the same tree that Saul's buried at by the outsiders. See that image? It's weighty. It's rich. It's painful. And yet, through the rest of the Old Testament, every time you see a tamarisk tree, it represents that hope. Even the death of a king couldn't stop the hope of peace. That hope of the tamarisk tree. The hope given to Abraham that someday all of this hate's going to go away. Someday, through your descendants, there will be hope. That caught my attention, that picture. I've been thinking about that picture a lot this week. The picture of, under a tamarisk tree, a marked grave with a crown, representing the difference between the insiders and outsiders. and How that tree still represented hope. Maybe I'm too poetic for my own good. But man, that's beautiful. And haunting. So I started doing research on the tamarisk tree itself. What I found is interesting. Did you know the tamarisk tree is the most invasive tree in the world? It's in four of the five continents. The only continent it's not on is Antarctica. Because I'm pretty sure trees don't grow there. But the tamarisk tree is fascinating. Because around the time of Abraham, it was introduced to the Ancient Near East, from Central Africa. And within 55 years, we start seeing tamarisk trees in some of the earliest geological findings that we have from that region. You know what that means? It was like kutzu in the South. It hit and went everywhere. Everywhere you turned, tamarisk trees were there. It was invasive, it was all over the place. Not only that, but then it quickly went into Europe, and quickly went into Asia. And what's even more fascinating is in the 1880s, it came aboard a ship, we don't know how, and got planted in North America. By the 1930s, the U.S. government had literally sent special teams of people to try to stop the tamarisk tree. And it had been found in the southern parts of Argentina. Within 40 years of landing in North America, there was already evidence of it everywhere. No, probably was already here, but still, it's a cool idea. Invasive tree all over the place. Saperlings everywhere. Can't be stopped. I find that this is an interesting image for God to use for hope. Let's think about it for a second. The tamarisk tree is notoriously invasive. It comes into places that it has no business being and doesn't seem to go away. Not only that, but it's fire resistant. In the 1930s, when the U.S. government tried to Get rid of the problem of the tamarisk tree, they thought, we'll just burn them. So they burned large scale forests and areas trying to get rid of the tamarisk tree. What they didn't bank on is that when all the trees were done, what would grow out first was tamarisk trees. The more fire they put on, the more that they came. They changed wildlife. If you're a bird and you're used to perching high up in an oak tree and looking for prey, what do you do when there's no more oak trees, just tamarisk trees, which are low to the ground? What about a squirrel, used to making its home in the hollows of a maple tree? There is no hollows in a tamarisk tree. Wildlife changes forever. Literally, not only that, but the ground itself alters, because of the roots, it alters the chemical makeup of the earth under a tamarisk tree. Completely changing what can even grow there ever again. Tamarisk trees. Super cool. But once they come from the bottom to the top, from under the earth to the top of the tree, every part of the environment's never going to be the same because of a singular tamarisk tree. And there's no known way to stop the invasion. Once it happens, it's over. You just have to embrace it and learn to love the smell. I hope you're not allergic. But You know what's interesting? In many ways, I find that this is a perfect metaphor for hope. Hope comes where it's not expected. It's notoriously invasive. All it takes is just a little, little hope to change everything. The fires of testing won't ever put it out. It just keeps hanging on. The more you try to burn it away, the more hope stands. The more Satan tries his best to put it out, the brighter it seems to burn. And it'll change you from the ground up forever. Hope is a funny way of doing that. There's no known way to stop hope. Once it's in you, it's in you. You're going to hold on to it forever. It's why despite exiles and wars and the, 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 all the devastation that the Jews struggled with, pastors like Isaiah 2:2 are still there. In the day, the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted and all the nations will stream to it. The tamarisk tree's hope hasn't been put out. We see it over and over and over again. Even Jesus, when he came, was reigniting the hope of the tamarisk tree, the promise that someday peace would come between people. When in Luke chapter 5, he's offering an invitation to the outsiders to make them insiders. He's undoing Babel. No more us versus them, Jesus says. The time is now. Abraham's promise will be fulfilled. In my family, in Abraham's family, there is no more us versus them. The hatred of all of the Philistines and all of the the others will die at the cross of Calvary. As the blood of Jesus rolled down the cross, so too did the hate roll away from the world. At least it should have. And as Jesus' physical body died on the cross, so too inside of him died the hatred of the them. At least it should have. The walls of hate was destroyed. Hostility over. Reconciliation Here at last. Abraham's hope fulfilled. The tamarisk tree made true. We're almost done, I promise. Even at the very end, one of the last things John, the, the evangelist, sees is this. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life. Water as clear as crystal pouring out from the throne of God and of the Lamb blowing down the middle of the city's main street. On each side of the river is the tree of life, producing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. Its leaves are for, what? Healing of the nations. We can't know this, but in my mind, you know what tree I picture there? The tamarisk. Its leaves healing the hostility and the hatred Revelation chapter 21 as well. Just a couple verses before that passage. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their grandeur into it. Its gates will never be closed uh, during the day and there will be no more night. They will bring the grandeur and the wealth of the nations into it. What does he say? There's coming a day when all of the nations, all of the thems, the others will be made one in Christ. I'd like to end here. I find it fascinating, concerning, but fascinating, the way that we can read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation and miss this. The hope of the Tamarisk tree. Because if we're being honest with ourselves, as I hope that we can be, all of us have others in our life the thems that we don't trust, we don't like, right? Maybe it's the political uh, other political party, the liberals, the conservatives, whatever. Maybe it's a race. Maybe it's a nation. Maybe it's a people group. Maybe it's a religion. We have all this hostility that exists between us and the thems. We sit together with people like us, and what do we do? We talk about the thems, don't we? We don't mean to, but we do. Oh, can you believe what they're doing? Those people. The us thems exist. But didn't Jesus die so that there would be no more hostility between the two groups? That the walls of hostility would come down under the light of the tamarisk tree as a fulfillment of the hope of Abraham? that the nations would find peace in us, in our church, in the family of Abraham, in you and me. I don't have an ending application here because I don't think I can speak more beautifully than I think the Bible does on this. I can't change you more than the Holy Spirit will. And frankly, I'm not nearly eloquent enough to try to capture this beauty. So let me leave you with this. Where are you? Has the Holy Spirit changed you? Is He changing you to get rid of the other, the thems in your life? To begin to focus on us, the world, all of us sinners, all of us desperately needing Jesus? Can we replace the hate, the anger, the animosity with love and compassion? Can we try? to reach across different divides and show meaningful relationship. I'm not talking about saying a nice word here and there, but living a life of sacrificial love towards the other, the ones that used to be the thems, but now in Christ become the we's. Jesus had a very clear message, and it goes like this. It's a story. Once upon a time, there was a tree and that tree symbolized hope. And that tree could change the world, and that tree could save the nations, and that tree could make peace out of hate and love, out of destruction. That story is still ours. It's still true. And today you and I find ourselves looking at the tamarisk tree with a decision to make. What are we gonna do with it? Whatever your decision is, we're here to help you. You wanna walk towards the tree of love, peace and unity, well, we'd celebrate with you. If there's anything you need from us, any step you want to take, the leaders will be in the back as together we stand and we sing.